In this interview, I'm once again joined by Tibetologist, author, and Tantric Buddhist meditation teacher, Glenn Mullen. We discuss references to the extraterrestrial origin of humanity in Mongolian shamanism and Buddhist Abhidharma. We explore the differences between a lineage and a sect, and the impact of the Tibetan diaspora on sectarian attitudes. Glenn reveals how it was he first began to teach, what makes a lineage holder, and how to relate to a tantric guru. We learn about why Glenn's approach to Samaya is very different to some other teachers, and examine the real-world application of the 14 danshik, or root vows. And finally, we explore the tradition of secrecy in Tantra. Why is it prescribed, and what is its purpose? So without further ado, Glenn Mullen. Mongolian shamanism. Humans long ago came from another planet riding on a winged horse. And so a lot of her pieces are what we first looked like. And so we had kind of, let's see, we got the signs. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and various kind of symbols of our land we left behind. <laughs> There's a bit of a interesting history, of course, between Himalayan culture in general and UFOs, isn't there? Regarding the theosophists, the that early ascended master stuff, there's some sort of crossover there. And isn't it also true that Dzogchen talks about UFOs and things of that nature? Or well, it wouldn't be UFOs to them. It would be, I suppose, extraterrestrials and so on. They would be FOs. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> no, IFOs, identified foreign objects, flying objects. Well, you know, um, Indian Abhidharma, Buddhist Abhidharma, According to Buddhist Abhidharma, when there were no humans on this planet, a group of uh, Akanista Deva came flying by, traveling on bodies of light, and they landed on planet Earth. And then there was a kind of a fruit on a tree that when it fell into the water, the river, it would make the sound zumbu, zumbu. And so they gave this country or this planet the name Zambuling, the land where this little round fruit makes a sound zambu. So a lot of people think that was the mango, the mango tree. And then, but then for eating that fruit, they could no longer fly, they couldn't take off, and so they got stuck here. And then uh, they didn't bring enough women with them, so they started having sex with the primates. And we turned out a bit hairier than they had been, and then had they been. <laughs> Some more hairy than others. <laughs> that sounds almost like Genesis, doesn't it? The eating of the fruit of the tree, causing some shift in uh, yeah, circumstance. Yeah. For that reason, I still don't eat apples, even though doctors say it's healthy. I don't believe them. I think doctors are an instrument of the devil trying to make us all corrupt and make us all eat apples so that we'll never be able to find the Garden of Eden, walking around farting from the apples. and That's the sort of thing that hides Eden and makes it go over to another dimension. 
You know, I mean, a lot of things in ancient prophecies could be taken that way. And, of course, ancient art is so uh, primitive, I suppose. It's hard to say if it's a flying ship or just someone throwing a rock at someone. <laughs> so should I leave that painting or put the other one? Yeah, yeah, it's cool. I like it. I like it. I might include a little bit of what you said there just to give it a bit, a bit of context in case people are wondering. Sure. Okay, so um, thanks once again for coming back on the podcast. My honor, my joy, and my pleasure. And last time we talked about quite extensively about your work as a translator. And I'd like to ask you about a different side of your activity. And I wanted to ask you today about how lineages work, uh, generally in Tibetan Buddhism, and in particular in the Vajrayana. And one often hears terms like authorized to teach or lineage holder or Rinpoche, Tulku Lama and so on. And I believe there's quite a bit of variation between the schools and whether it's monastic or non-monastic and so on. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about how that tends to work. And also, I've heard you say that in the Vajrayana, one generally teaches because of one of two reasons. Your guru asks you to, or everyone else is dead. So I'm also wondering how it was that you began teaching, and, and, and perhaps perhaps those two threads are relevant to each other. Yes. Uh, in terms of lineage, then... Tibetans like to think in terms of sects, Kargyupa or Drikung Kargyu, Shingpa Kargyu, Sakya, and so on and so forth. But lineage doesn't mean so much sect in the tantric sense, that, but rather that every individual tantric transmission passes from one uh, lineage, uh, one living master to another living master. And so many, there was a saying in Tibet, Lama Rere Chulu Rere, every Lama is his own sect, his own school, or his own order. Because many Tibetan Lamas, just like myself, they may have a stronger affiliation with one sect or another sect. But in reality, they will have received lineages from many different transmissions. But I think the situation is a little more sectarian, if you will, in a negative sense, since Tibetans became refugees, because as refugees, they lost their traditional manners of support, and also they all became greatly endangered of extinction. You know, in 1963, there was a Dalai Lama called a conference of all the high, highest lamas who had escaped from Tibet, or known highest lamas, uh, more famous high lamas. And the, the real purpose was to make a um, plan for how to proceed, because in Tibet they had an enormous country the size of Western Europe before the, uh, the breakdown of the Soviet Union. And they had 1,500 years of strong history of, of stability. And suddenly, they're refugees in a poor country with no means of support for anything. And many schools or sects, in this case sects, not lineages, sects, had uh, only one or two lamas, qualified lamas, had made it into exile. 
Meanwhile, back in Tibet, the Chinese had razed all every building and library and temple and stupa and monument right down to the foundations. Uh, and uh, only 13 were preserved as standing structures, and they were used for military purposes, warehouses, um, barracks for communist soldiers and so on, from uh, Chinese communist soldiers and so on. And so Tibet was in, Tibetans were in very dire straits in India. Nobody had any money. They came out, basically the Chinese started shelling one day and a lot of them just left that afternoon. They just ran to their houses, grabbed their 10 most precious possessions, usually a Tonka painting, a book, and a little bit of uh, cash, a little bit of gold or silver, and head toward the border. And in India, it was a big problem. So then the one sort of camp thought we should just make one big school here in India, one big institution, and preserve everything within that. But the Dalai Lama was against that idea, and he said, this isn't the time for that, because right now everything is so endangered. We have to, we'd be much better off to find, identify one Lama from each of the main 20 or 30 training institutions in Tibet, or, he didn't give a number, <laughs> maybe a hundred, <laughs> and uh, try to put together some sort of support for that one to collect together whoever else has escaped. And if anyone else from that sect makes it out, put them together and find some money for them to build a small building and uh, have a sort of a cash flow or people can eat and <laughs> and then uh, with children coming out a lot of them are orphans and some of them um, with each of them do a sort of a analysis if the parents if uh, parents sent them out often with a note should they do they want them to go to a western school western style school a modern school or go to a monastery and if so which monastery so they went that way and that in that way the sort of sectarian aspect of Tibetan Buddhism. And I don't use that word sectarian here in a negative way, but the preserving of the individual sects uh, continued in India. But now they're all very small. Traditionally in the Tibetan world, one of your teachers will tell you to start doing that. When did you begin to feel that obligation? Well, probably after about 12 years or so of my training. And... I had quite a few books out, started having books, uh, some books in print, and my publishers, uh, mid-80s, started asking me to do reading tours and lecture tours, too, of course, because when you're in a city, at least in the 80s, the newspapers were huge, and they're always looking for human interest stories, so that's a way to get you in the newspapers, and radio shows were trying to get you on little talk shows to talk about things, and Bookstores loved to host speakers because that was a way of getting an audience into their bookstore. So I really started like that. And uh, I mean, that's how I started public speaking, I guess, if you would. <laughs> and then uh, a couple of my llamas, a few years later, uh, late, I guess, 85, 86, those kind of years, and I was going back and forth to Dharamsala in India a lot. And so started encouraging me to start taking students and uh, 
disciples, if you will. <laughs> but uh, in the Buddhist world, a disciple or a student doesn't have the kind of um, devotional hoopla that it does in some of the Hindu traditions we think of. It's much more like an older brother, younger brother, or older brother, sister, younger brother, sister kind of relationship. It's more uh, what well, one of my great lamas, Kibji uh, Dobam Tuku, who was uh, now in his 80s, I guess, in India, as he put it, it's a dharma sharing. <laughs> the older brother, sisters share with the younger brother, sisters. I think the reason Buddha did it like that was that uh, the peoples who senior students personally benefit a lot from teaching. It's a really a way of them studying themselves. Teaching is a way of studying, way of deepening your understanding because it's really a test but also tends to bring to the disciples something a little easier and more accessible because those sort of challenges faced by you know, trainees, if you will, the Tibetan word is dulja in Tibetan. Uh, dulja means uh, tameables. <laughs> That's a polite way of putting it. Yes, Dave, you look like a tameable. <laughs> <laughs> I think I need to shave first before I'm tameable. Dulja, <laughs> those to be trained or those to be tamed, says something like that. But job indicates it can work. So I think Buddha set it up like that because he didn't want someone teaching being an announcement of their enlightenment. You know, then it becomes very... Everyone's rushing to teach because they want to proclaim their own enlightenment. So I think that's a problem if you take it the other way. So traditionally, for instance, in Dharamsala, the oldest living lineage holder of a tantra would give the initiation. And then he would appoint one of his disciples to give the teaching. So, for instance, in my own case, in a January, I think it was, of 1973 or Christmas of 72, that winter, uh, I was in Bhagaya and to receive Yamantaka empowerment from Ling Rinpoche. And traditionally, he was the most common one to give that empowerment because he was the oldest and great, considered greatest lineage holder. But after the teaching, then he appointed Lama Zopa Rinpoche, who is the head of that Foundation for Preservation of Tibetan Buddhism, FUMP, F-P-M-T, FUMPT, <laughs> organization. And at the time, he wasn't the head of it. Lama Yeshe was the head, but they were both in Bhagaya for that teaching and initiation. And Ling Rinpoche, although Lama Yeshe was Lama Zopa's teacher, and Ling Rinpoche could have asked Lama Yeshe to give the teaching, he purposely didn't. He purposely asked Lama Yeshe's student, Zopa Rinpoche, to give us the, that teaching. Because I think he thought it would help Lama Zopa uh, with his own practice and understanding and re 
sort of, and it also that it would be fun for us to see someone not that much older than us doing the teaching. But of course, Lama Sopa at that time had been immersed in that practice probably for 15 or 20 years, but still he was just uh, in his mid-20s, maybe late 20s at the time, but I think just mid-20s. So he appointed him. So that was kind of a Buddhist tradition going back to the time of Buddha. So there is always the thing of who is the sort of the nominated lineage holder, main nominated lineage holder. So if you go through lineage prayers, for instance, and we went on to the seventh Lama, and then goes from the seventh Dalai Lama to Chankyarope Dorje, the great Mongolian master who was the guru of the Manchu emperors. And uh, one person is nominated is in, any, in every generation as kind of the representative of the great lineage holders. But that doesn't mean he was the only one. And there are many hundreds of sometimes in some centuries when the, the really great teachers and great practice conditions, there are many hundreds of lineage holders who are very highly qualified and some at least as qualified as him. But that's kind of a different issue. That's sort of a a way of recording the transmission historically and just someone serves in that position, you could say, as main living holder of his generation. And largely because probably he gave the initiation more than others and had more prestigious disciples than others. And therefore, his name is more important in some ways than than others. You mentioned there about this idea of a kind of older brother sort of style as opposed to the more devotional style one associates often with the Hindu uh, approach. Um, Mm -hmm. However, I think it would be fair to say, well, I think I've observed anyway, a great deal of that devotional side of things in American and European students, I suppose. I'm not sure really where it comes from. You probably know this idea of Tilopa sort of style, uh, radical obedience and eating the leftover food and this sort of thing and a real um, devotional style relationship. Yeah, certainly the Lama Latensu, uh, how to rely upon a qualified teacher. And probably in the West, it's a little more uh, experimental, I guess you would say, than it is with Tibetans, because Tibetans have had experience with training under a qualified teacher. They've had that experience for many, many centuries. And so their way of relying tends to be uh, very different, say, than a group of Texans (laughs) or uh, Arizonans or Californians. And there are certainly, if you look at the Naropa training under Tilopa, um, Marpa's, yeah, Naropa's training under Tilopa with these 12 tests and so on and so forth. There is something like that, but in certain cases, I guess you would say. And uh, of course, in all probability, Naropa's 
biography as written in that way with those 12 tests is allegorical and not literal. And people who take it literally might get a little bit uh, wonky in their relationship with their teacher. But having said that, I think in any tradition when people take allegory and metaphor for literally true, then things can go in every direction. Uh, for instance, when I was at a conference in Russia five, six years ago, well, five years ago, there was a professor talking about the special ethics of Guya Samaja Tantra. The, the conference was on Buddhist ethics. So in the hidden tantras, the Bhagyu, like Chakrasambhara and so forth, all the meaning, words are in a code and the meaning is hidden behind the code. So he took a practice known as by the inner offering in which you put the five meats, uh, you visualize five meats in a skull cup and five liquids. You transform it by the power of Oma Hung, and then you drink it or you taste it. And the five meats, one of them's human meat and another's dog meat and so forth. Elephant, bull, and the five liquids are like menstrual blood and sperm and uh, shit and uh, urine and uh, liquid marrow. So his interpretation was that you should actually be the special ethics of Guya Samaja is that one should consume these things as is. But of course, it's a hidden tantra. You're not supposed to. You're supposed to, as an offering, your five skandhas are like the five wild animals and your five kleshas are like the five poisonous uh, liquids or five unpleasant liquids. And you should transform these by the power of your Tenzingatung Chakya, by the terms of meditation, mantra, and uh, mudra. In other words, some kind of stamp or seal of bliss and void. So you're supposed to transform your anger into a healing nectar and your attachments and addictions into healing nectar. You're not actually supposed to drink blood and sperm and so on. Oh, you know, I could sort of like to visualize him running around Moscow, sort of picking up bits and pieces of blood in your <laughs> shit and piss and so on. <laughs> so any time we take things literally, things can go in the wrong direction. We see that all the time with Christianity and, you know, Christ is coming again at the end of the world and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, yeah, when allegory becomes taken literally, it always makes a problem, but Spiritual traditions often speak in allegory because allegory and metaphor are often more powerful images than our a thousand words, as the expression goes. A picture is better than a thousand words. So it's important in Buddhism, right at the beginning of the teaching, all usually Buddhist masters point out that Buddha said, with all things, don't believe it, because I said it be like the analyst buying gold and cut, test, and burn. And if it meets your reason, then think maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> and then if you take it on as a practice or as a life principle and you feel benefit, and the more intimate your relationship with it, long-term your relationship with that teaching, with that principle, 
the more clear it becomes that it is uh, it is authentic or it is beneficial it is true dharma then that's the taste of the the proof of the pudding is in the tasting and so Dalai Lama often says when he teaches Guru Yoga, we often see, it's said that you see the Lama as perfect. You see the, but the, the Tibetan, well, our word often translated as perfect is in Tibetan Senden, which means qualified. And this statement said is if you see your teacher as Buddha, even if he's not Buddha, you get the same benefits of re as receiving the teaching from the Buddha or from a Buddha. The attitude makes a difference. And that's really meant in quite a simplistic way, uh, qu you know, quite a practical way or psychological way that if you show and other things like don't see faults in your teacher because otherwise your own faults will give you opinions on what is and what isn't enlightened. And so they're seeing faults in teachers, really seeing faults in yourself, or too easily a reflection of faults in yourself. And those are simple practical guidelines to that when you're in a bad mood, you know, your llama will seem less than great when you're grumpy. If you're drunk, he'll seem and so on. So again, of course, this can go in the wrong way and we see historical incidences when perhaps it did. I mean, there's a big hubbaboo worldwide about a year ago about Sogyal Toku and the Rigpa organization and he is abusing that, allegedly abusing that and uh, that principle for his own enhancement and abusing students and so on. Who is to say, you know, you know, in terms of uh, Sogyal, he did so many great works and beneficial works to me to erase all of those historically or to try to negate those because of some incidences where some students in retrospect became unhappy with things or complained about things. That's fine. It's their right to complain. It's sort of people's humans' rights to take any opinion they like on it. But my opinion is whether or not he was that abusive, uh, outrageously so. So anyone who brought it to my attention, I either said it's either a criminal act or it's not. If it was a sexual thing, if the woman's over 18, then if it's a rape or force or drugging, then that's one thing. If it's not, then it's... Um, consenting adults and on the one hand people want things to be have the consenting adult rule the rights of people to follow their own human guidelines and on the other hand if they do something where they think they made the wrong decision they want to blame someone else for that wrong decision so it's been like that in the Buddhist world from the beginning, as in the Christian world and Muslim world and Hindu worlds, uh, where I think 90% of the time we see things going well and it being a win-win situation. And 10% of the time, uh, the relationship between teacher and student may go in the wrong direction. But I'm not big on the teacher getting all the blame when it goes in the wrong direction. Uh, Otherwise, you end up with a, every time 
there's a someone cries, I'm a victim, that other side is immediately becomes the object uh, identified as the victimizer. And it's really not a sensible way to run the world. And humans over the age of 18, I mean, we could do what Obama wanted to do and leave people on the their family health plan until they're 26, so they don't become an adult until they're 27. <laughs> and so change the age of consent from 18 to 27. <laughs> and if anyone is a, under 26 and later complains about a relationship with someone, that's not a breach of the law of the land, then that's so in terms of Tilopa Naropa, we could say if we take it literally, probably he did break some law that exists, say, in America or Europe at the moment or something like that. This, if we take the story literally. Well, he whacked him with a shoe, which is assault, <laughs> at the very least. Never mind the rest. <laughs> I said to him, if someone was really one of my disciples, they'd jump off this cliff. And Naropa jumps off and breaks every bone in his body. And then Tilopa walks up and said, good job, kid, good job, and touches his hand and he's made whole, he's restored, and all the broken bones are immediately fixed. So I think when you look at these stories, if your Lama, if you do break a bone and your Lama can just touch your hand and that broken bone instantly heals, probably your relationship with him would be a little more you'd be a little more confident <laughs> than if it's just some lama sitting on a on a throne explaining the meaning of Nagarjuna's you know, um, um, jewel ornament or a jewel garland or Shanti Devi's body Chayavatara. <laughs> but uh, when lamas are mainly, when a lama's main job is to impart Dharma teaching and to assist the student with uh, gaining success in meditation and yoga, then it's a more big brother, little brother relationship. So Dalai Lama said in that case, you know, see the Lama is perfect, take that with a pinch of salt. And uh, all, all Tibetan teachings on so-called Lama Nelja Guru Yoga says the student should examine the teacher for up to 12 years before accepting that person as a personal spiritual teacher. And so that uh, that admonition is there from the beginning. So if later someone did that and then says, oops, I made a wrong decision. Well, don't blame it on the Lama. <laughs> that's my opinion. And that's what the, the text suggests that. And you're touching there on these aspects of Samaya, or the, these root vows, as they're sometimes called. And that's an interesting list. There's 14 of them typically listed. You're touching on that first one there, disrespecting uh, the, or criticizing the Vajra master. It seems to me you're calling for a sort of, or pointing to a self-responsibility within that arrangement, whereas one could see these sorts of vows as being an almost an abdication of personal responsibility, a sort of almost an infantilization uh, to a certain degree, and transferring that responsibility 
de- in the to use the word dependently perhaps on on this figure of the vajra master it seems like you're saying something rather different to what i i hear a lot of people say you know that's that's yeah. so there's a couple there for instance disrespecting but you've talked about that insulting one's vajra brothers and sisters mistreating one's body keeping bad company upsetting those who have faith in the teachings i'm just listing these off the cuff here from i got this translations from wikipedia so denigrating women for instance are there any of the other root vows that you think are sometimes a little bit taken in the wrong way well as the 13th dalai lama points out in his uh Namsha, the foundations of tantric practice the lists of 14 and 8 were not made by the buddha they were made by monks in India. Name the 64 sort of so-called bodhisattva vows were not from the Buddha. They're sort of lists put together by monks later India. So there's really only one precept in Tantra, and that's to always see oneself and others as yidam and to maintain the mind of bliss and emptiness or bliss and radiance. So I prefer to think of those damsig, uh, you could say, as uh, suggestions left in the suggestion box where every generation one lama gets to drop one in and you get up to 22 and then they close the box and said, that's it, no more. I think if you look at all of those in a kind of a, I don't know, gentle way, <laughs> The word about the Lama is a Lama Mamepa in Tibetan, not, not developing deep hatred or not despising. Doesn't mean that you don't decide, you know, this a relationship with this teacher isn't working, I'm going to drop him. It's perfectly fine to drop your Lama at any time you like, to say, okay, you're fired, to do a Donald Trump on him, you're fired. <laughs> And when you get the teaching on how to develop, a, how to have a w- successful relationship with teachers, um, in my case, for instance, I've got between 25 and 35, depending on how many hours of teaching and instruction it takes to qualify <laughs> as one of my teachers, but minimum 25 and maximum, I suppose I could add a few more who, to whom I feel some gratitude for some small transmission. And with each of them, uh, are they all living Buddhas? Are they all actually perfect beings? No, but I mean, they may be, but am I able to certify them? It's like, you know, Robert Mueller with his Trump investigation. Can he exonerate Trump? It's not, you know, it's not our job to exonerate. But with our own lamas, we can never say that lama is perfect. We can say from my side, he seems like a really great guy. He seems to hold authentic lineage, seems to do authentic practice. And the lineage I received from him made sense to me and seemed very meaningful and beneficial. And when I practice that lineage or I put that into practice, then it's, I feel it's great benefit. An example, you know, maybe 72 or 73, I met the previous Kala Rinpoche, a really wonderful, wonderful Lama who had done 12 years retreat and I received quite a few uh, transmissions from him because he was in Bagaya that year and doing quite a few. And I practiced him and felt great benefit. And he was very uh, admiral kind of a guy. 
And maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 years later, his female translator, June Campbell from Scotland, I think, grumbled that during the years with him, they had been sexual partners on numerous occasions and also occasionally suggested to her that she do sexual practice with some of the other monks in his entourage. Now, whether that was true or not true, <laughs> I'm not a policeman or an investigator, and she was over 18, so in my opinion, if it is true or is not, it's not a, it's not a crime, and therefore it's a personal matter. But uh, from my side, uh, I would have the choice, if I was a close student at that time, and he were still alive, I would have the I would have the authority to say to myself, well, if that's how he behaves, I don't think I'll receive any more teachings from him, or I don't think I'll study any more with him. And uh, so then I would, as the expression goes, politely excuse myself. So, for instance, when I first uh, started studying Tibetan Buddhism in 1972, you know, every Lamrim text from the time of Atisha and Gompopa has uh, one of the early chapters on is on how to have a an effective working relationship with your teachers. And one of the points I always said is there may come a, a, a crossroads sometime in the future when you decide you really aren't benefiting from this or you're not comfortable with this relationship with that person. So the tantric precept, Mamipa, is you shouldn't hate him or despise him or whatever. You should think, well, I, I chose to do that. I chose to stay. I received those teachings. At the time, I was feeling benefit, and I still can take the benefit. So we have that expression in, in uh, the West, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. <laughs> so I'll just say, if I put it to 35 teachers, uh, rather than 25, if I include all 35 from whom I received any transmission, probably a dozen of them in my mind uh, I don't regard as very high. I still think back with gratitude from what I received from them. And, you know, um, some of them after two or three sessions or three or four sessions, I never went back to listen to them again because I decided that kind of um, texture, I guess, atmosphere doesn't really agree with my uh, karmic predispositions. <laughs> so thanks a lot, but no thanks. So that is there very strong. And I think it, you know, so not despising your lamas, because their relationship with teachers tends to be very personal. And it's just like in a marriage almost. People get married. It always amazes me when people divorce and then hate each other. And that the same word is used, mepa in Tibetan, which really at best translates as despise or very deep hatred, very deep anger. And uh, you see this in divorces. And it's like, you know, this woman married, chose this guy out of the two and a half billion men on the planet, chose him, you know, made love to him probably hundreds of times, sang all kinds of love songs and coo coo ka ka ah, oh god oh god you're so great ah. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
and things go off track and suddenly, oh, that guy's the worst guy on the planet and I don't want to ever see him or talk to him. And Every time his name comes up, it's with absolute anger and hatred. So that shouldn't be there with anyone, anyone, let alone one's own former lover. And it certainly shouldn't be there with anyone with whom one had a spiritual relationship. You can say, just like in a marriage, you can say, well, this isn't working out. I like Gwyneth Paltrow's way of putting, this is a conscious uncoupling. <laughs> so that precept or that samya, that damsig in tantra, I think is very right on. Because in the Buddhist world, and uh, you know, one has many teachers. It's not you have just one teacher and that's that. It's not like with Naropa. I mean, even Naropa had 20, 30 teachers during the course of his life. It's just Tilopa's special because it's the one who brought him to enlightenment. And then his biography is told in this sort of romantic allegory, allegorical, almost like Ulysses or the Homer the Odyssey or one of these kind of stories. And uh, so it's kind of special, but most of us, like you, I'm sure, you've met many lamas, you've received different things from different lamas. And in my case, you know, previous Karmapa, not pre previous Kala Rinpoche, and of course, Dalai Lama, previous Ling Rinpoche, trees and Rinpoche, Sakya trees, and many, many, many lamas. And will all of those be a win-win situation? Some will be like in the love situation. Uh, we'll work out for a week, and then we'll decide we don't like the way the person chews their food. <laughs> Or maybe they snore too much, so we want out of that relationship with that, with that lover, that lady, or she wants out of it a relationship with us for whatever. But if it's done with anger and hatred, it undermines that whole benefit that was received, and uh, just really has a, I think, a disastrous effect on the person. So, as in an angry divorce, you still see people who. 10 years after their divorce, still are filled with, ang filled with anger and hatred and resentment over that. And it doesn't help anyone. So I think that's an extremely wise precept. That's one I like uh, uh, very much. Yeah, not criticizing Vajra brothers and sisters. In Tantra, we're supposed to see ourselves as the yidam, others as emanations of dakas, dakinis, in other words, Buddha, karma, or enlightenment energy, enlightenment theater in action. So we're supposed to practice that towards the next door neighbor and the green grocer and the, you know, our dentist. <laughs> and, our, <laughs> and suddenly we're supposed to like start talking to our Vajra brothers and sisters like they're terrible people. I mean, there's, and again, it doesn't mean you have to like the person especially. Although in Buddhism, we'd say you should have bodhicitta, you should have love, compassion. But I don't think love, compassion means like. In my case, I like to think that I have love and compassion for Adolf Hitler. Uh, but I don't especially like him. And I was married to a Jewish woman for 12 years, and she didn't have anything nice to say about him, I'll have to say, and nor did her relatives, quite understandably. Uh, and the trouble is with Vajra brothers' sisters, in ancient India and in Tibet, these were kind of closely knit groups. You know, if I was in a little valley in Tibet and there was a Lama there, say, take Milarepa. He had 18 
They're called 18 repas under them, 18 white-robed practitioners living in their caves and hermitages near him, training under him. If they're always biting and shouting and fighting with one another, basically, Milarepa's lineages would have disappeared. If they can't at least be civil to one another, and even in Buddhism, I mean, in the simplest form of Buddhism, when we talk about negative karma of speech, one of the objunctions is stop saying harsh things to others. Don't say anything harsh ever. And secondly, don't say anything negative about one person to another person, to a third person, divisive speech. Listed amongst the four basics to call yourself a practicing Buddhist is the ethics of the 10, ten moral rules don't kill others, don't steal from them, and uh, you know, don't take people's women and take other people's guys. Make it a big civil war over uh, romance and sexual issues. And first, no harsh speech. Never say anything harshly to another. I mean, if you do it, perhaps. So, for instance, Buddha says, if you want to say something harsh to someone, it's a very. this is in one of the Pali Sutras, very wonderful. You should think, okay, I want to say something harsh to this time, critical to this person. I should choose the right place. <laughs> you don't just go blah, 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 oh, you asshole, blah, 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 you're always blah. <laughs> should choose the right place to say something hard. And then the right time. Okay, I'll wait until evening and we're walking. We'll go out for a walk and I'll bring this issue to his or her attention that, you know, they're a big mouth lout always. Like, blabbing away and I want to scold them for it, but I'm not going to do it harshly. So I'll choose a nice time when it's quiet and we do. And thirdly, the right manner. <laughs> so that is, Tantra is supposed to be an advanced form of Buddhism. We say Hinayana is our basic practice. Mahayana is what our practice flowers into. And Vajrayana is the ornaments on the mansion of Mahayana. So from the very time we take up Hinayana practice, our basic, simplest form of practice, don't kill, don't kill, steal, don't. <laughs> we're told, you know, we're said, if you want to be a Buddhist, no harsh speech, simple. So there you are. And of course, you're not always going to get it right. Sometimes your wife or your girlfriend, your boyfriend, there's Someone else is going to irritate you, and you'll shout out, oh, you motherfucking low-down, no-good, hopeless excuse for a humanoid, and so on. And that may slip out. But once you do that for a few years, you should be able to develop this idea that harsh speech is not a Buddhist practice. Someone with harsh speech is not a practicing Buddhist. They may be a devotional Buddhist. They may say, I'm a Buddhist, but they're not a Buddhist uh, in practice, only in devotion. They like Buddhism, but they don't have the power to practice it. And so then you come two stages later to Tantra, the ornament, which is supposed to be for those who are deeply matured in the first two, and you still can't keep your big mouth shut when you get angry at someone. <laughs> So I, I like that precept very much, or that uh, damsik, that samaya. 
you know, samya here doesn't really mean vow or precept, although it's sometimes translated like that. It means like a, samya means a kind of a commitment. For instance, in the word in tantric practice, and it's used in tantra, that's a tantric term. And for instance, when we say samya mudra, karma mudra, mahamudra, and dharma mudra. Samya there means a kind of a commitment practice. Karma mudra means a life partner with whom we practice. And Mahamudra, great bliss and void, is our stamp or seal of our practice. Samya means we commit to that practice. And in Tumal, for instance, Samya mudra becomes a visualized sexual consort. So in that same way, samya here means my commitment is if I get pissed off at one of my teachers, I don't develop a deep hatred and resentment which lingers like an unpleasant after flavor for years. I just say uh, bye-bye, thanks a lot, I enjoyed what went by, and same as we would on a divorce. Well, let me ask you a question about that because I think it's something that needs to be asked for completeness. We return to this point of the hating, you know, the despising. You use the example of divorce for, you know, and, and as, as another example of a relationship that might end uh, in the same way a relationship with a, a teacher might end. What about when someone does you wrong? <laughs> you know, it's one thing to consciously uncouple from uh, somebody with whom some irreconcilable differences there but presumably both of you are able to reach some sort of mutual agreement that you may not like, but it, there's a certain uh, workability there. But sometimes one may find oneself um, on, the, on the end of a bad situation wrought by another, and there may be resentment there or injury of some sort. Whether or not one intends it, it may be there. Mm-hmm. In the sort of tantric point of view or in this, in this frame you're, you're setting here, how does one address that when you have been, let's say, done wrong in that way? Well, there's two things. First, I like to, my favorite Dalai Lama to quote is the seventh, because uh, you know, 1708 to 1757, he was my favorite writer, my favorite poet of Dalai Lama's, my favorite mystic, the greatest of all the Dalai Lamas, in my opinion. And he wrote that a, a wind blowing in from a sandalwood forest smells sweet and a wind blowing in over a field of shit smells foul. Whether your friends are like sandalwood or like shit, your lifestyle is uh, impacted accordingly. So choose wisely. And so uh, that's not to say that um, we shouldn't have respect for those that person in other ways. Now, if they wronged us, we might look upon it that there is some legal recourse. You know, there we have both two things, right? We have Dharma rule and we have civil rule. There's sort of a spiritual principle involved and uh, the, the, the legal situation of the land in which we live. And as Shantideva writes, when they are in harmony, there's no problem. When the law of the land is different than the Dharma principle, we've got a sort of a little bit of a challenge to put those two together. 
So then we have to decide what's the best uh, resort to that. And then if that person has personally wronged us in some way, uh, then we have to look more carefully. Now, one issue that we learn both in the principles of karma from Hinayana and the principles of uh, sort of inter-responsibility from Lojong and Lam Rim from Mahayana is that it takes two to tangle. <laughs> we always think that person wronged me, but how did I get in that situation? We tend to have in every situation, whenever there's an argument, the sense that I'm right and that person's wrong. And of course, sometimes it will be like that. But when we are in a situation where we are wronged, something brought us to that situation. What are the karmic flow energies or the step-by-step -step of our life through this lifetime and previous lifetimes, which brought us to that situation? So always, in certainly, in from point of view of karma, in other words, the bigger energy flow of the universe of which we are this kind of little thread of part of a big tapestry, what role did I play? How did I get there? How can I see some of my own responsibility for the outcome? Well, for instance, I was once in New York, and uh, I'm walking down the street, and these two hustlers come up. And so, and I want to buy, I'm going to just come back to India and I want to bring a little laptop to give to a monk friend down in monasteries in South India, a Western monk who is living there. And uh, New York was a good place to pick up one reasonably cheaply. And someone sort of hustles me. I'm looking at one. He says, oh yeah, well, my shop down the way, I can get that for you for this hair. It's like $780 or so. I can get you that for $350. We go down. And then uh, when my money is out, he sort of sort of grabs it and just runs. <laughs> so, you know, I could say he done me wrong. And I could say if I could catch him, I would probably press charges because he probably does it to more people than me. And I wouldn't do that out of anger. But I have to see my own culpability in that. I heard him. I was looking at one. And he had said, oh, I, I, my place down there, I can get it for you for much less than that, blah, blah, blah. And so my thinking is, oh, that sounds nice. My own gullibility got me into it. Thereafter, I was a little more careful whenever I was out buying something and um, people offered me better deals elsewhere. I didn't get hurt from it. I did lose $350 and... I don't know, that was 1989 or something when $350 was about uh, $2,000 today probably in buying equivalent, but of, of grocery buying equivalent, not computer buying equivalent. <laughs> and uh, so I think we have to look at it, our own culpability to some extent and take some responsibility what befalls us. So I like the Lojong training where whenever anything happens, to you from another, we think, well, of course, that person did this evil. We don't think necessarily the word evil, but this unpleasant thing. <laughs> but from my side, there must be some karma, karmic seed for that to happen. And so I breathe in and everyone who has that kind of karmic seeds of attracting some sort of negative experience, breathe in for all of them. Notice how this, I'm not unique in being wronged. 
people are wronged all the time or perceived they perceive themselves as being wronged and breathe back out and all those people who are similarly wronged <laughs> breathe some good energy and say hey guys get over it cost you 350 bucks but at least you learned maybe down the way it'll save you 10,000 <laughs> because people are getting scammed all the time aren't they around the world and if we don't get scammed ourselves sometime we'll be a little bit more lackadaisical and more trusting of appearances so i think that is very important to see our own culpability but also then we should see if someone's a danger like if i know someone's a thief I should, and I see that person is befriending someone, I, I should, I would be very remiss not to say to that other person, excuse me, but, you know, don't trust this person, they're a, they're a pickpocket or they're a thief and they'll try to get into your house and case your house and later come back and burglar it or they're a rapist and they'll try to find points of entry and come and rape you. I would be remiss not to mention those things. But on the other hand, I should also see that when negative things happen to me, there's some kind of connection I have with those things. I have some responsibility in those experiences. I think especially American life has developed a finger-pointing practice where the other is always in the wrong and one is always in the right. I love that early Kadampa saying from the Kadampa Lamas of the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries when they say whenever you want to point an accusing finger turn it and point at yourself <laughs> in general if we don't point at ourselves we never learn from our experiences you're quoting tibetan sources there but actually in terms of modern psychology when it comes and therapeutic techniques when they discuss integrating traumatic events and so on one of the key points is to understand one's part in it, however great or small, or to, in order to understand what one can then do in the future to avoid yeah. a repeat performance of, of what that is. And even the most horrific um, events, if they're to be integrated and not lodged as a sort of permanent wound in the psyche, have to be understood and analyzed along those lines. It's actually seen in modern therapeutic techniques as, as an empowering thing a little bit the same way a physiotherapist might move a limb even though it hurts in order to rehabilitate it you think well it hurts that's, that's bad well sometimes that's that's a part of the healing process so what you're saying does echo modern therapeutic techniques it, it's just that the language is is, a, is slightly different so it's quite interesting to me to see that parallel well of course a lot of um, modern psychotherapy and therapeutic technique a lot a lot of it is cross-fusion, you could say, uh, from interaction of different civilizations, different cultures. We look at Western thinking, for instance, um, Freud's Oedipus complex is very similar to the Abhidharma teaching of how when we're born, we have this attraction to the mom and repulsion for the father, jealousy for male, and so on and so forth. And Jung wrote, you know, prefaces to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation, introductions, I mean, 30, 40 page introductions. So from, from the time of Schopenhauer, a lot of Buddhist ideas crept into European thinking. 
and uh, came to America a little bit later, but then coming to America largely from China and Japan through the California experience of immigration of huge numbers of uh, Japanese and Chinese peoples. And of course, they're largely Buddhist cultures and they brought their so-called priests or monks or uh, teachers with them. So there are a lot of influences of Buddhist thinking on modern Western psychotherapy and many of the disciplines. And, you know, I think in the West, many of the most successful Buddhist teachers are actually graduates in with uh, either majors or minors in psychology. You know, people like uh, Jack Cornfield and Larry Rosenstein and Goldberg, Daniel Goldberg, and so on, because everyone's in much the same kind of situation. But if we look at the Buddhist way of approaching social issues, and also traumatic situations, I would say, they tend to have a more psychological approach to it traditionally than, say, our Western Judeo-Christian approach, where it's sort of this good-evil drama dynamic, and this one person is the good person who's God-faring, the other person's an evil person who's not God-faring. And, you know, that works to some extent, I suppose, in, you know, taming, getting people to try to identify more with being good and God-faring. But in reality, many, many good God-faring people also create many unpleasant <laughs> events for others. I mean, sexual abuse, uh, um, you know, robbery, rapes, business, business cons, and so on. So I think uh, the Buddhist tradition has a sort of a very old language of addressing social and psychological problems with a kind of a mind-based, uh, or, organic mind-based linguistic that I think has helped a lot in the way Western psychotherapy has developed in the last 10, 15 years. People, really good people to read are people like um, Rob Rob. Priests, for instance, in England, a wonderful counselor, psychotherapist who lives in Devon and writes books on the sort of the psychology of Tantra and the psychology of uh, Buddhist practice and sort of tries to take the traditional language used and put it in a sort of a more, more pop, pop psychology jargon. And that's very useful because those many people in the West grow up understand having some sort of grip on pop psychology. Then earlier, I think an earlier session, we discussed translation and how Buddhism is going to the West. In the early days, a lot of the books were translated by Christians. So we get a lot of this good versus evil drama, dramatic theater language in there. And then later after the... Vietnam War, a lot of college students having to go to war, and that starts to become more psychological. And so, for instance, probably the first widely successful Western teacher was Chogyon Trumpa. And of course, he went to Oxford and did a lot of studies of Western psychology. So he tends to teach in sort of pop psychology language as well. And then 
Sogyal Tuko, of course, also was sent over as part of that program and picked up something of that language. And it is a better medium for Buddhist thinking than, say, certainly the sort of late 19th century Christian vernacular <laughs> that we get in the early translations. Those boot vows, boot vows you were mentioning, uh, you know, every, everything in Tantra, these things tend to be, tends to develop because of issues that pop up over the centuries. And they tend to be sort of suggestions. I think of them suggestions. Now, because monks take very legalistic vows as part of their monk vows, like, and it's, they're all identified in very legalistic ways, like if a monk does this, and if this is the motivation, and if his conscious during the whole thing, and if it leads, reaches conclusion, <laughs> you only got these four points, then that monk has broken this precept. But tantric precepts aren't much more like that, aren't much like that at all. They're more like a kind of a guideline, you could say, or a or a practice tip. <laughs> so I did have another question actually in a slightly different tack, which was to do with the issue of secrecy or the practice of secrecy that's so associated with Tantra in general. I remember seeing something somewhere, and I really ought to have remembered the specifics of this, but I couldn't find it when I looked. But something to do with the fact that certain a certain uh, lama, no one knew this person practiced tantra until they died, and they, they were sorting out his bits and pieces and found in his little package he had kept with him all the time his bell and door jay. You know? Right. Yeah. So there's this idea of of keeping one's tantric activities secret. Mm -hmm. And could you talk a little bit about that protocol? and what the recommendations are or what the rules and regs are regarding that and what the purpose is behind it. Right. So this kind of thing, I think it's, you know, it's largely, largely speculative. So I can give an educated guess <laughs> or I can pronounce the ultimate truth. Which one would you like? <laughs> uh, either is good by me. And I'm also interested in how does it look? We you know what? It says, let's say, officially, these are the things that are said, but then how is it practiced or how does it actually play out practically? The story you mentioned is about a Kadampa Lama, the late, late 10 hundreds, early 11 hundreds. And I think what happened in Tibet when Buddhism came in, you know, in the 4th, 5th century, and then it became the national religion under Sangsen Gampo in 630 or so, Prior to that, the most spiritual traditions in Tibet had been father-to-son lineages without much, uh, and monasticism was non-existent. And some lineages were mother-to-daughter, but mostly the ritual side was father-son, and the oracular side, the clairvoyant side, was mother-to-daughter. And that went on for many centuries. And then after Buddhism came into Tibet, particularly after, say, Trisang Dutsen time, Padmasambhava's time, basically these same sort of ritual shamanic families just took over the role of being tantric practitioners. 
and therefore would do Buddhist shamanic rituals for healing and for health and wealth and do whatever you need, your needs in life. Right, uh, but not Nakba the way we understand it today, which is a type of monastic ordination, but without celibacy, without those vows, without those um, vows of celibacy and so forth. But rather it was father-son kind of shamanic ritualist role. And so traditionally one in India, we have the three yana, hinayana, mahayana, vajrayana. And... Uh, during that early Kadampa phase with Atisha, he was a little bit concerned with the public display of Tantra as, you know, Nakbas or these guys sitting in the middle of town doing Tantric rituals and you know, almost like beggars playing a, playing a fiddle or something like that or buskers in a London subway and nothing against buskers or beggars with fiddling. But... Tantra wasn't really meant to be just that. And so Atisha's early Kadampas had this saying, inside, outside, you should be a Hinayanist. Calm and cool and uh, incognito. <laughs> Understated. Inside, you should be a great Bodhisattva, Mahayanas, with great love, compassion, Bodhicitta. And secretly, you should practice Tantra. Don't, and if we say Tantra is the highest teaching of the Buddha, and this is usually, if we speak of three yanas, this is what's usually said. That's also said that without Tantra, you cannot achieve enlightenment in one lifetime. Then naturally, everyone wants to proclaim, I'm a Tantrika. And so to try to take that egoism out of it, I think was the purpose uh, in Tibet of that kind of story that you quoted. Now, back in India, I think a little different because in Tantra, there is alcohol, there is meat, and there is the use of sexuality quite a bit. And I think in India, it became more secret because of the power of the Brahmin cultures and the Brahmins, no meat is allowed and with many of them also no alcohol. And so using meat and alcohol became an issue with Brahmins. We saw that in India uh, when Dalai Lama and the Tibetans started going there in the 60s and 70s. And then under the tree, they would do the, the soak offering with meat and alcohol being offered. Just a little piece of meat and a little fingertip drop of the alcohol. But local Brahmins were aghast. So... Dalai Lama asked them to replace it with tea and yogurt. <laughs> so secrecy, I think, in early days had to do with Tantra being a little bit of a radical approach. Like Hinayana, Mahayana, both are known as causal vehicles. We regard ourselves as unenlightened, cultivating the causes of enlightenment. Therefore, it's called the vehicle of causes or the Gyugilam. Tantra, the Trebugilam, the path, the path of res the result or the path in which you see yourself and others as sharing in this enlightenment nature. And of course, this enlightenment nature isn't something which is obvious. Like, for instance, if I look at Donald Trump, of course, because I'm a Buddha, I can see he's a Buddha. But if I were just a 10th level bodhisattva, I wouldn't be able to. I'm just joking. <laughs> 
But for us to see our own enlightenment nature or the enlightenment nature of others, it's a little bit of a, of a non-obvious phenomena, you could say. There's the expression, only one Buddha can really see another Buddha. Another Buddha's Buddhahood, you could say. We can only see kind of as far up as we are on the enlightenment evolutionary scale. So practicing this path of the result, path of sharing in the uh, Sangye Trinle, seeing all things as Buddha energy and others and ourselves as these sort of beings on the evolutionary path of enlightenment and carried, being carried on waves of enlightenment energy. It's a non-obvious reality, and therefore we should do it a little bit discreetly. Otherwise, it's very irritating. If every time I sit with someone, I say, I start saying, yeah, yeah, I'm enlightened, I'm Chakrasambhara, and yeah, you got a bit of a Chakrasambhara look yourself. <laughs> it becomes silly. And so that's why it should be, I think that's a one reason why it should be kept in street. And the other is that Tantra uses extraordinary means, and therefore it can bring unnecessary criticism and draw draw heat, as the expression goes, from unwanted circles. So therefore, the one of the guidelines of the 14 root guidelines of Tantra in the Samya that you listen is don't talk to Tantra uh, to the unripe. I mean, if someone really is committed to, if they're a committed Christian or a Muslim or a whatever they are, and no interest whatsoever in Tantra, and you start going on and on and on about how great Tantra is, it's nothing but irritation and has no benefit whatsoever. So I think keeping Tantra a little bit secret was, uh, you know, in India to in honor of the Brahmins and uh, not to draw too much heat. And secondly, uh, because the very nature of the practice is on a non-obvious phenomena. Why does the non-obvious aspect, I don't quite see the link there between that and discretion. Well, uh, because it's something one is doing in one's own yoga, one's own mind, which isn't part of anyone else's necessarily anyone else when I walk into Sears which isn't doing very well these days <laughs> when I walk into Sears I'm probably the only person in that store if I go to Macy's on a sale day and there's 3,000 people pushing and shoving to catch the sales I'm probably the only one doing that practice and so I should keep it to myself or I will just seem weird and strange. It can seem almost schizophrenic, I suppose you could say. It's kind of a purposeful, the yoga of a schizophrenic application for the purpose of uh, penetrating to the deeper nature of the mind. <laughs> sort of like in the ancient Greek mysteries when they have masked dances to try to change your sense of self for that evening and I think they would use alcohol and also some kind of various kind of drugs to transform consciousness and they would wear the mask because it's part of the whole process I would say 
So in this turn, in this in this style, I think, yeah, you're doing something which is out of the usual, and best not to draw attention to it, or it'll just be a distraction and a hindrance. Glenn Mullen, thank you very much. Yes, sir. Bye bye for now, and may all beings be happy, have the causes of happiness, be free from suffering, and the causes of suffering rest in joy, which doesn't disintegrate, and learn to live with equanimity that has equal love for both pleasant and unpleasant beings. <laughs> Ciao. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.